This is the Paul Kirtley Podcast, episode 49. The Paul Kirtley Podcast. Wilderness bushcraft, survival skills and outdoor life. Welcome, welcome to episode 49 of the Paul Kirtley Podcast. Now my guest today is Gordon Deadman. Gordon is a former member of the Australian Army 1st Commando Regiment and is currently a survival instructor in Norforce. That's an Australian Army Regional Force Surveillance Unit which conducts patrols in remote wilderness areas of Northern Australia, working closely with Aboriginal communities. Gordon provides civilian training in Australia through his school, Bushcraft Survival Australia. In addition, Gordon works seasonally as a tour guide in Kakadu National Park, which is Australia's largest national park, covering almost 20,000 square kilometres. And for reference, that's almost half the size of Switzerland. I first met Gordo when he undertook some courses with me in the UK a few years back, and we've kept in touch, regular contact ever since. For this podcast, we caught up in Melbourne, Australia, to discuss Gordon's experience and work and to get into some detail on bushcraft and survival in Australia. Also, it's worth mentioning in this introduction that I'm often asked by younger people how to create a career around bushcraft and survival skills. Gordon's career path is an interesting one and I think the way he balances his different interests, commitments and income streams is thought-provoking for those who wish to work in our field, whether they're young people looking to build a career or older people looking to change career direction perhaps. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Gordon Deadman. Well, I'm very pleased to be sitting here with Gordon Deadman, my good mate Gordo, and we are in Melbourne, Australia, and we're in the lovely Botanical Gardens here, which if you're ever in Melbourne, I'd recommend spending some time in because it's a great collection here, but it's also a nice opportunity for us to sit outside and talk about all things bushcraft in Australia and also particularly delve into Gordon's background and what his interests are there are a few planes and helicopters flying around but hopefully they don't, they don't get picked up on uh, the microphones too much try to find a quiet spot in the park here but as i speak we've got a plane coming over <laughs> i will ask Gordo, how are you doing i'm today, pretty good mate? here i'm very well thanks Excellent. Paul. and welcome to the podcast it's I'm really glad to be here and thanks for thanks for asking me i appreciate right. it my pleasure my pleasure let's just wait for that plane to go over it's my luck in life to wherever I want to record something. They're got, following you around. Yeah, they are. I feel like I, you know, I get a little bit paranoid. Followed around by spotter planes. But, um, no, really good to have you here, Gordo. And this has been a little while in the making, and we've known each other for a while. Um, you've been over to the UK, and you've you've done stuff with me, and now we've managed to meet up a few times in Australia. But maybe for the benefit of the people that are listening, that maybe don't know you because I know there are people who follow me on Instagram and social media who follow you and vice versa but for people who don't know you could you maybe give us a bit on your background going right back to your military days perhaps and how you first got into that and bringing us up to date 
with where you are now and your interest in bushcraft and survival that would be fantastic just to set the scene and we can dive in from there so. all right no, thanks all well, thanks again for having me paul really appreciate that so where to begin uh i was born in country new south wales in a town called moree which is about eight hours inland about 10 hours northwest of sydney mm-hmm. so it's technically almost the start of what they call the outback but it's in the wheat belt country so i grew up out there and had an early interest in just actually in nature and being out in the bush. I used to spend lots of time out in the bush just going for long walks and camping as all kids do, you know, building shelters and lighting fires and um, all of that sort of thing and building rafts and the creek. And I just enjoyed just being out out there and I had a a good Aboriginal mate of mine and he, um, I was always fascinated in Aboriginal culture and how people got on. And uh, country New South Wales is quite a different type of place. and country Queensland, it's sort of not not necessarily the most open-minded places, but um, some uh, with the ch- change into farming. But there's some wonderful stuff out there, the dried-up creek beds, and I still miss that to this to this day. But I went right through school there before I went to university out there, and just and just loved it. And um, so I had an early appreciation of just that sort of stuff. I was in the Cubs when I was um, when I was young. And I think that sort of fostered an early mm. appreciation for all the all being out in the um, in the bush, and just being in country Australia, you, you sort of grow up doing a lot of those things. You had to create your own fun, doing lots of you know crazy things, jumping off the bridges, railway bridges into the into the into the creeks, and doing lots of crazy things that you just wouldn't be able to do now. And mm. you know, so I look back at some of the things that I we did as kids, and I still wonder oh, I'm still alive actually. <laughs> some of the things that you see it up to, but. Um, after that, I went through school and I went to university. And Did you I, study music at university? I studied uni. Yeah. I went to um, Bachelor of Music at Newcastle mm-hmm. um, University, Conservatory of Music, then went to Sydney mm-hmm. and did an associate program in jazz studies and then went on to do education after that. Mm-hmm. And so you trained as a teacher, is that right? So Yeah, I did. went back to do that in mm-hmm. a, teaching in the private system, mm-hmm. in the classroom and um, peripatetically and privately. Mm-hmm. And I worked as a professional trumpet player in Sydney for many mm. years, mm-hmm. um, doing shows and being a musical prostitute, basically playing everything <laughs> that was stuck in front of me to read. It's more of a reading type of uh, a job, but loved it. Mm. And while I was um, studying, I my interest in martial arts I had a huge interest in martial arts and did karate for years and got into jujitsu and all the grappling, which I know you mm. um, love. Mm-hmm. And that sort of sparked an interest into the. Um, uh, the military. Mm-hmm. And my father was an officer um, in the Australian Army Reserve mm-hmm. for many years, and I'd always wanted to do that, and had this fascination with unarmed combat and uh, bushcraft and survival. Mm. And I, you know, as a kid, I had Lofty Wiseman's yes. <laughs> survival handbook, and used to make shelters and fires, you know, and, and taking myself through that book as a kid, and just you know, playing silly buggers out in the bush. So when I got to, when I was uh, as a trumpet player, and it is sort of a, a yin and yang existence because you couldn't probably get more extremes, I decided to enlist in the Australian Army. Mm. And I thought, well, I wanted to do something that sort of would give me the opportunity to do some of those things. So I thought, well, I, so I went and enlisted in the um, Army and went to the 1st Commando Regiment mm. and trained up there, did all my, um, went through your general recruit course, your IET training, 
and train up for to, people that don't know what's IE. Oh, okay, initial employment training. So mm-hmm. it's an infantry unit, mm-hmm. and it's Australia's only uh, reserve uh, special forces unit. Right. So it's a pretty tough thing to get into, and that the, the time I did it, they were actually taking people off the off off the street. They occasionally do that. They had a push, so it was a hard sort of selection criteria to get in in that regard. And it was and the full-time commander. So they weren't regiment. literally lifting people off the street yes. at night into the back of a van. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You mean quite. they weren't just recruiting from inter- yeah. inside the military That's but they were right. taking... They were outside. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but they did that later. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, like the, ch- the press gang of, of the old days, yeah? yeah. It was... No, it was, it was interesting. It was, uh, I looked at other units and I think, no, if I want to do something, I want to do it, do some... Mm. some uh, do the whole hog. And yeah, this, uh, that was that was pretty tough. So, no matter what army unit you're in, you still have to do your you know, your basic recruit yes. course, your initial employment training, mm-hmm. which is dependent upon the unit you join. And so I uh, did that, and I spent two years as a reservist. And the our obligation as a reserve in the Australian Army Reserve is you have to do a minimum of 25 days a year, right. but you can do up to 100 days or mm-hmm. 150 days, tax free, and um, they look after you. But you've but in that unit, it was a high, um, very um, high commitment level. So mm. you had to do, you know, weekend a month. And they expected you every Tuesday um, nights, you know. And if you missed more than two trainings, you had to show cause why you should be there. So right. I spent two years training up to do selection mm-hmm. to enable me to go from a Mabere, Green right. Beret. And that mm-hmm. was, and all the courses were the same course, mm-hmm. whether you're reserve or full-time. You right. competed against, so mm-hmm. the you were competing against all the people that had been, you know, had been in the army for a number of years and still to this day that selection was still one of the hardest things I've ever been through Mm. in my life. That selection was a two-year selection where it was actually combined SAS commando selection for two years I did that then SAS went on to do another few days on top of that Mm. but those few days were still the hardest things I've ever done. There was a number of people that tried out for that 120 people I think they took about 18 of us and then a few went on to SAS after that Mm -hmm. and that was just the usual bollockings and just 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 really being beasted non-stop Mm. for you know 12 12 days and uh yeah it's some really really sort of tough stuff and then from that went on to after the selection was went on to our um CBTC basic training commando course and that went on to your parachute course, and then after that, you did one specialist school, and you got your uh, beret, right? Which I was sort of fortunate to to stick with it and do that, and still there's some of the yeah you know, some amazing training. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is I wanted to go down, hoping that they were into the survival realm. We did elements of it then, mm. and to get into the unarmed combat side, which of course we did lots of you know training then at the unit, which mm-hmm. is at the mercy of the uh, OC of the unit and what they value as relevant training mm. and that was sort of at a time before Australia started was involved in anything that sort of happened I'm talking about 1998 2000 mm. that's the period that was and so it was great and I was there for a few years mm-hmm. and playing trumpet and teaching and jumping out of helicopters and doing silly things on the weekends <laughs> and running around so it was, it was it was great so it was literally two lives you mm. know, doing that one to the other and, and martial arts and jiu-jitsu in between mm-hmm. so I was very very happy actually yeah very busy and all the time whenever I'd go home because I was living in the city in Sydney and that was a frustration because I just wanted to be out in the bush so mm. I'd be I suppose I just wanted to be 
doing the bushcraft type of stuff, which I was just, um, I missed from being in the city. Mm-hmm. And so a musician living in as a soldier, in a, trapped in a soldier's body that wanted to be in the country, so it was mm. a strange mix. Mm. And then I did that for a number of years. And uh, every time I'd go home camping, um, I'd just literally go out into the bush and just, just go fishing and camping and and just try just build, trying to build shelters and just learning a lot on my own, trying to learn about plants and what I could and was just continually fascinated with how Aboriginal people mm. spent their time living in the bush and what what would happen what what if if you didn't have anything growing up before that had been heavily into um les hiddens and the bush tucker man right and that was also one of my inspirations for um enlisting in the army and around that time i'd read les of course was in the army wasn't he he yes he was was a major major. he's a major in the australian Mm -hmm. army and he Mm -hmm. he's um i don't think what unit it was but he'd had a lot to do with norforce and 51 Far North Queensland Regiment, which are based in Cairns, mm. one of the RFSL units, the Regional Force Surveillance Units. And that's and what they did was the thing that really, really interested me. Mm. And so uh, that's what I wanted in that particularly because they're one of the units that spent most of their time doing survival training. Mm. But because I was a trumpet player in Sydney, I was doing all that stuff. And, and every time I would go away on an army course, I'd spend so long away from playing that I would, um, or for a month away, my, I'd miss out on my work, I'd get adept to doing a lot of my jobs and my gigs and things like that, and then you'd come back and you find you didn't have that gig, <laughs> your tepid got it, so right. then spend another two weeks getting my lips in shape to, mm. to be the standard to do professional work again. So that was constantly back and forwards from that. But I was heavily into the Bush Tucker Man um, when I was a kid, and I just used to just love love that program. I used to go out and see if I could find you know what these plants were. However, they were all based around northern Australia, not too much down the the eastern coast. Mm-hmm. And um, around early two thousand, or just after two thousand two, I was just teaching. I just decided I just started doing did a ship contract, playing trumpet overseas mm. uh, on some of the big cruise ships, on the Cunard ships and mm-hmm. Princess ships, which enabled me to do a lot of travelling mm-hmm. and uh, playing. And I was only going to do it for six months, but a, a woman got in the road and changed a, changed a <laughs> bit of that. And but however, it was great because being overseas, I. Uh, after the end of each contract, which I was only doing part-time just for half of the year, and I'd come back to Australia and, mm. and get back into teaching, playing, and, and doing army stuff, I started um, delving into doing courses, um, bushcraft courses overseas. Right. And I had one stint where I was living in uh, England, mm-hmm. in uh, up in North Yorkshire, um, for, for a period of time, and I discovered Ray Mears on, on television, and just that sort of fostered that love and think, wow, that's, that's that was sort of a really resonated with me and that's what I was sort of mm-hmm. wanted to do. And I just started, became hooked on watching watching all those programs and just immersing myself in, in, um, in that. And I started uh, doing some courses. And then after, and then I was continuing doing ships. And then I, uh, after every ship contract I did, um, be it with Cunard or, or Princess around the world, I'd stop in that country and I'd go and do a survival course right. or a bushcraft course. And I did that for or a number of years and just, um, was just, I just wanted to learn and learn, do as, as many things as, as I could and, uh, and just in different countries. Mm. Coming back to Australia in between each. And with the Army, I'd, I'd transferred from the 1st Commando Regiment 
back to I went for a period of time for a few years. I did a bit of a mixture of full time service, which in um, CFTS in the army, which is where you can elect to go. You're a reservist, but you elect to go full time. So right. I did some of that with Australian Army Band Sydney. So I transferred as a as a as a, as a bandy, okay, um, as a professional musician with the army, which still allowed me to go away and do the ships because I was a reservist, and mm-hmm. it was a bit of a strange mix I had, <laughs> but as um. And that work, I did that for a number of, yeah, a few more years, mm-hmm. um, off and on doing ship contracts in between, um, continuing up, continuing doing a variety of courses. And I think I did quite a, a few of um, the Woodlaw courses mm-hmm. from the, the basic through to the yeah, intermediate, the journeyman, mm-hmm. um, tracking, and just did as many as I could. At the same time, I'd... Uh, after each contract, I did a few of uh, Dave Canterbury's courses, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. his Pathfinder courses. Over in the States. In the States in mm-hmm. Ohio. Mm-hmm. And uh, went, uh, continued on doing some of his, uh, on, he had some online courses then, his certifications, mm-hmm. and put myself through those. And the beautiful, because I was travelling a lot, I had the opportunity and the time to just put that stuff into practice. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, do it in different countries and I just I just it sort of fostered it I just loved the traveling mm. an incredible amount of, of traveling actually and um, I was doing what I loved playing trumpet running around the bush and learning these skills I, I was actually I couldn't be happier yeah and still satisfying my army minimum army commitments right and I continued doing that for for a few years right up to about was 2013 I um Came back to Australia, sort of um, pear-shaped uh, relationship went sort of went south. Mm. But I was in for someone in, that I was with in England, and uh, I decided to come back to Australia. And always, uh, my um, initial love of Norforce and all that unit was, I decided to um, that I wanted to to um, completely follow that solidly. So I moved up to Darwin. Mm-hmm put the uh, the ships on hold for a while. So for I, people that don't know the geography of, of Australia, Darwin is where exactly? So you were down in New way. South Wales before. So I was in Sydney, yeah. um, which is the, the, the capital city of New South Wales, down mm. the, the south eastern quarter of Australia. Mm. And Darwin's up on the top of the Northern Territory. Mm. So about 4,000 uh, kilometres uh, northwest from, yeah, from Sydney. People don't always appreciate the scale of Australia, do they? When they look at the map of Australia from one end to the other they don't realize that that internal flight for example from i don't know melbourne up to cairns or sydney up to darwin is a it's a long way isn't it oh it's it's a huge it's a huge yeah. it's a four and a half hour flight i mean i'm in nambucca heads near coffs harbour at the mm. moment it's like an hour flight to sydney then you fly back up mm. but i've driven it a few times and that's um you can do it in four days, but five days is, mm-hmm. but you know, five, it's, um, yeah, about $900 in fuel and uh, it's a long, but it's a, it is amazing and it's, it's a huge drive mm. and it's definitely one you want to do with company in, in the car, yeah. a good podcast <laughs> <laughs> because it takes a while, but it is, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's tough on, on man and vehicle. Mm-hmm. But uh, so I decided to go up to that unit. So I transferred from Army Band Sydney. And I sort of missed some of the special forces type things I used to do when I was in the mm. commandos. And this unit in Norforce is an unconventional unit. So we did a lot of sort of strange things. It has a very um, 
large number of Indigenous people in the unit. Mm-hmm. And they're all drawn from all the communities around Darwin. So I moved to Darwin to be part of Darwin Squadron. Uh-huh. North Force has squadrons in, uh, in Catherine. Uh, they've actually all over the show. There's one in Alice Springs. Um, there's units in, in, the, in Kununurra, in the Kimberley. And then there's the sister units of uh, North Force, which are f- uh, 51 Far North Queensland Regiment which is in uh, uh, Cairns, Queensland. We also have the Pilbara Regiment as well, which is sort of stationed in Perth, but they sort of um, regularly travel up to the Pilbara. So they're all RFSL units, which Mm. is Regional Force Surveillance Units. And the nature of Norforce is that it's pretty much in, uh, looks after the border, um, the borders of Northern Australia. Mm -hmm. We work with Border Force quite closely, and it was set up um, years ago, it used to be the Nakaroos, um, used to be known as that, and it was originally set up by the SAS to look after uh, the, the, the northern borders of Australia. Right. And we work with Border Force quite regularly on patrols. Mm-hmm. There's lots of, you know, from activity coming down from the north, either being illegal fishing, illegal boating, from drugs coming down, all sorts of things. So mm-hmm. we work with... Uh, with the uh, border force in looking out for that and of course a lot of the aboriginal communities are the eyes and ears in the north mm-hmm. and the northern australian coastline is vastly you know it's uninhabited in, in many places and extremely remote mm-hmm. so the uh it's it's very difficult for them to patrol that entire area mm-hmm. but uh what drew me to it is that the nature of the patrols is six six man patrols and a lot of the skill sets you need to be part of that uh, that unit involve, uh, you know, there's, you've got a medic in the unit, you know, obviously a signalman or radio person, um, radioman, the patrol commander, 2IC. And the nature of the unit, we're away from being resupplied for great periods of time. So survival plays a huge part in what that unit does. Mm. And I'd always read about it. And with the info, they used to do quite a lot of tracking. Not so much anymore, but they're looking at, at bringing a lot of that stuff back. Mm-hmm. And because we're in such a harsh environment, survival plays a massive part in it. And that's what sort of drew me mm. to move up there. But mm-hmm. to be part of a unit, you have to live in the AO, the area of operation. Right. So I moved up there in uh, 2013 and just systematically went through all my the courses you have to do, which mm-hmm. is, you know, a couple of every every year. And, and they do lots of community engagement, lots of Indigenous um, um, communities up there. So you spend lots of time around communities, getting to interact with um, a lot of Indigenous guys in the North. And they're amazing people. They get mm-hmm. to spend quite a bit of time with people up there. It's, it's, it's fascinating, actually. And the survival that we do is all based around that Northern survival training and they the north force runs a survival course once a once a, once a year mm-hmm. for a two to three week period and we get people from all over the australian army coming up to do those courses because right. okay. apart from north force the other the only other groups that run survival course in australia is the sas mm-hmm. and the um, air force they right. run their, their combat survival training school which is based in townsville mm-hmm. it's a good course they did their course a, a couple of years ago and that's a that's a fantastic course as well and that's that's the the, um, the SEER training, you know, aimed at uh, downed pilots. Mm-hmm. And we have a sort of relationship where the, the Air Force come over and do our 
our courses and we go over and do theirs right, and it's, right. it's, it's, it's a big family. So it's, mm-hmm. it's great and there's some great guys over there. And uh, so we regularly do that and I'm, a, I'm an instructor in Norforce doing a lot of those courses. Mm-hmm. And it's great because a lot of the, the civvy courses um, that I've done and of course um, I think when I... Dis, uh, discovered your podcast a couple of years ago. I was, you know, I thought they were fantastic. The, the depth of detail and the knowledge in there. It's, um, and so I always have that eternal student mentality where I never want to stop learning. So mm. I think it's really important to, to keep doing that. So when I, I went and did a couple of yours course, courses, which are fantastic, and um, I sort of bring that, all, all that back as well. And of course, the skills are different in every country you go to. Mm and a different focus and the military focus is different save in a lot of the the civilian focuses and of course there's a the difference between survival and bushcraft yeah, i mean how how would you not necessarily asking you to define the difference between survival and bushcraft because that's a thorny question for for anyone but in your experience what's the difference between the focus or the mentality with the military courses versus the civilian courses that you've done and been involved with? I would say the uh, dealing with stress and I suppose the priorities of survival to get you out of a, a situation with in other words just the, the bare essentials it's an emergency something's gone wrong either in the military sense it could be lost Mm-hmm. Or as we say in the army, geographically embarrassed, <laughs> or uh, some sort of a vehicle accident. It could be a plane crash in the case of air force or mm-hmm. down, you know, a downed aircraft, and you're somewhere where you shouldn't be, and you need to get back to a period, uh, an area of safety, and that's through either self rescue or setting yourself up to be rescued, done tactically. Mm. So without sort of, you know, in a in a in an enemy area not letting anyone see you but that could be just in a remote harsh area as well mm-hmm. so the focus is getting found and getting rescued with sort of not too much uh, aesthetic um, or, or the niceties of that sort of the art side of bushcraft which which I love it's just the you know just getting it done and getting out of there and that's what they're concerned with mm. so the skills are the same skill set essentially just the focus is different so but heavily just on um dealing with stress how you would deal with stress without some of the comforts and um prioritizing what's important to just get the job done and get out of there or get be rescued yeah so it's it's a different yeah different focus and so on our courses you know got food sleep deprivation and all that type of thing it's it's really just to put you in a period of uh, stress to see how you'd function without food, without sleep, and mm. of course it's, it's different all without being able to protect yourself from mosquitoes and things like that, which up in the north are mm. horrendous. And sometimes it's just simply, um, I haven't spent much time in Canada with the mozzies, and I know they're pretty bad, and the um, can be the yeah. midges. Well, the midges in Scotland can be bad. The ca- the the mozzies in Canada can be bad, depending on time of year. So yeah. Are midges the same as sandflies? No, they're they're tiny little noceums, as the Americans would call them. I mean, they're the minuscule, and they bite. They bite, yeah. Yeah, that's like our, I think it's our sandflies, and I I really itch up and scratch non-stop for a few days once I get hammered by mis- um, sandflies. I actually hate them more than mosquitoes. Right. 
and I think must be mildly allergic to them, but yeah, they're horrible, and mm. they'll get through any sort of gauze netting that isn't as um, isn't fine, fine enough. enough. Yeah, yeah. But there, up in northern Australia, the mozzies are, can be pretty horrendous, and when it's very, very hot, mm. and you, you're sweating a lot, and the last thing you want to do is put something else over you, and you say you want to get some breeze, so you'll take the mosquito net off, right. and then you get hammered. Mm. So sometimes you just can't sleep. Yeah, and is that all year round, or is it? Does it vary like it does in other parts of the year? Because like some parts, of the, some you know, some times of the year in the northern hemisphere are really bad for biting insects. You know, in the summer, but then in the winter, there's there's nothing around really. So is it is it similar? You got the seasonal differences in the, or is it too tropical in the north of Australia for it to make much difference? Well, down south, we well. Looking at European seasons, Aboriginal people all over had many yes. more seasons than just four, there's five or six. And because they had a, an intimate relationship with the plants and the animals and they were the things that spelt the seasons, mm. not so much just a calendar. And up north was the same. So we sort of um, recognise it as a dry season, a wet season, where there are many more seasons and that really... So they look at more nuanced changes than every subtle change like mm. the flowering of one plant could signify the um you know crocodiles are laying eggs in another area that's time to collect something so that everything led to something else and one one plant flowering signified another plant dying or vice versa mm. and they had it's it's, it's quite very and that wasn't dependent on the calendar because that would change depend on rainfall and temperature mm. and and all the different cycles and up in the north, but predominantly you've got the dry season, which lasts from roughly April through till November, give or take a month, and then the wet season between that time, which you just get your monsoonal rains. Mm. So the worst time is the build-up period, and that's generally September, October, November, starting halfway through August where it just becomes hotter and hotter and more humid and hasn't rained for months and every so animal like your spring in the sort of northern sort yes. of four season model yeah and that's yeah so yeah that's um in yeah down south mm. and that's that's the hot it's a horrible time they call it the balmy season when half of you know people up in the north start going crazy <laughs> because and that's when it's when it's really really hot it's mm. just ridiculously hot and humid as well and humid yeah. you know 80 percent humid i actually did a uh, an activity north force just recently and we were in an, in an area a remote area just around that time it was in um in november and it was yeah ex- extremely hot it was really horrible in a very remote area and just being hammered by m- mozzies during the night no mm. breeze you couldn't sleep and you're just under a, under a hoochie with a mosquito net, which was too hot to put over you. But if you took it off, you got hammered by mosquitoes. Sometimes you just spend, you know, walking around and just packing your arms with DEET and things like that mm. with the army insect repellent, which melts your little warnings on it. Not to put it on the plastic of the yes, weapon because yeah. it melts it. And of course, <laughs> it melts you think the weapon as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no plastic, but but it's it's definitely. Uh, it's uh, something you have to learn to tolerate, I guess. But yeah. it, it's, I think it's just, but you just, I have to get on with it. That's you, probably the hardest you, just, thing. Just out of interest, because I've met a few people who spend a lot of time in the bush where there's lots of mozzies, and a lot of people, certainly in the north, tell me that after a while your body doesn't react as much to bites as as it does initially. 
So, you know, I met a Sami guy in the north of Sweden. He said one of the traditional ways, and I don't know how widespread this was, but he said, you know, just go and drink half a bottle of whiskey and lie out in the bush <laughs> with your underpants on and get bitten to, you know, get bitten to shit. And then you'd have a horrible first couple of days in that respect. But then after that, your, your body didn't react as badly for the rest of the season. And I've met people in Canada who've said similar things that, you know, when they were younger, they used to come up in big welts and big lumps when they got bitten by mozzies. But now, yeah, they feel them when they when they get bitten, you know, they feel the proboscis going in or whatever, but then they don't come up in, the body doesn't overreact like it seems to if you don't get bitten by them very often. Do, do you find a similar thing in, in the north of Australia or do you just... Have is, I haven't tried the whiskey thing <laughs> in the Andes. <laughs> Probably but, best not to do it when you're on an operation. Yeah. <laughs> but they, um, however, I, sandflies do that to me. I'll scratch and scratch and scratch. Right. Mozzies, it's more the, the, the buzzing around your head mm. that annoys me more. But once I, in, or if you're in a hammock, sometimes in a hammock I find that because I'll just bite right through it. So oh, if it's really, right. yeah. and, but it's, it's more of a annoyance where... However, I've been stung by mozzies so much, and then just and not been having any protection, and you just cake up with you know from scratching, and then you've got nowhere left to land after a while. But moz, but sand flies are worse for me. I'll scratch for two or three days and literally scratch myself raw. They oh, they're my gosh. worst thing, and that's. However, after a while, you just sort of get used to it. But the uh, the counter to that is um, if you've got the ability to make fire, which mm. obviously you can't always do on an operation or patrol or something like that, you, um, if you can have fire, in the bush sense, I'll, I'll have a, a smoky fire. But we have had that, we've burnt termite mounds. We're in mm. the north burning termite mounds as a, um, Aboriginal people used to do. That works really, really well. Like They're great to cook fire, in. Yeah. Yeah. Smudge mm-hmm. fire, yeah. Smudge fire on top of it. But I've had had ones where I've been sleeping out and they're great to cook in as well termite mounds they just hold the heat for long periods of time Mm -hmm. whether it's a ground oven putting uh, termite mound in in, in the on the bottom of a a pit Mm -hmm. lighting a fire above it and they act as your hot rocks and they'll hold the heat for for hours but a few times we've actually dug into a termite mound made a little little uh, like like an oven and in the back you put a flue in just a hole and light a fire in that, and that'll keep the. Uh, until we were actually eating, you know, some you know, mud crabs on a patrol once, su- substituting our ration packs, mm. which aren't always the healthiest thing in the in, in the world, with a bit of bush tucker mm-hmm. and a nice smokeless oven. If you burn the correct wood mm-hmm. at the correct time, you can pretty much produce almost zero smoke with nice clean hard wood out the back, and that and that would stay hot for hours. So it's almost like a sort of natural pizza oven type. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I cool. actually really I think I've seen a. You, did you post a photo of that on your Instagram account? Yeah. So a while ago, and that yeah. and that works. That's a that that works. It's great. I've done that a few times since. Great for cooking fish, and I think we you know. About fifteen minutes, a whole mud crab in there. It's mm. yeah, cooked beautifully, right, right, right through. So, do you have um, favourite bush tucker in that sense? You know, you've mentioned mud crabs. I've seen you fishing, for, uh, for, uh, collecting snails in the past as well, on some of your stuff. The 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 telescope, 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 and telescope. The um, or long bums as we call them. Long up north. bums, yeah, and they're pretty much all around the uh, northern waterways all the estuaries so there's lots of lots of those and they're they're really just easy easy pickings and you literally just pick them out of the just water just pick them out of the water you need to sort of give them a bit of a wash mm-hmm. and stick them when you cook them just stick them um, point first into the coals into the hot coals 
and pretty much five or six minutes and they'll cook in their own juices. Mm. Hardest thing is just a matter of breaking the shell around the top. It's going around in a circular fashion with a, a stick or a bit of wire or a stick to pull out the um, spiral-like creature inside. So the flesh is it's like spiralled around inside the... The, yeah. the shell is it right okay. and it's a green it doesn't it, it comes out when it's cooked green it's like this green it's got this greeny slime you just have to take the slime off the side but it actually tastes yes yeah, it tastes really nice some people don't like them but it's um mm. i think i think they're fine and uh, uh or you, if you've got a, a multi-tool or something like that you have to snap it off just to the top of it so you can pull pull that out and you've really got um yeah they're as, as many as you like they're everywhere and they're mm. very easy you know it's very low energy meal to collect mm. but they're catfish are prevalent but even just going along the beach with uh, mollusks and limpids mm-hmm. things like that and just cracking those open uh, or mud whelks which are the other sort of little hermit crabs they love the catfish will take those and literally just an improvised line and that you'll pick up uh, uh, those very very easily and just with literally one cast, a few seconds, boom, you got a you got a catfish oh, really? on because it's you know very under fished under up there. Fished. So, so th- what do they take as bait? Do you, do you bait those with grubs or um, local no, insects? Um, or? I'll use the the mud whelks. You can take oh, you them like the a little hermit. Yeah, okay. You you could use the um, the long bums as well. Sorry, I misunderstood what you meant. There. I thought you were collecting the mud whelks to eat, but you're using those as bait. You could use the, them as bait. Right, and there's okay. a similar one. There's the long bums. The um, there's also mud whelks. They're like very similar to, to long bums, almost mm-hmm. like a little hermit crab, and they'll take those. And pretty much any of the, the, the shellfish up there, um, you can pretty much take them out and use it. limpids as well as, mm-hmm. as, as bait, and, mm-hmm. and the fish will take those, and you can cook them up as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sharks, there's got a lot of sharks up there. So I had a, just on this last year, I caught a couple of catfish, and the, the uh, Sharks had come and take those as well, right. but um, but the odd ray, but they're good eating. So it's a lot of people don't, you know, they said they say they're not the best table fish, a catfish. But to be honest, it, there's nothing wrong with them really. Mm. I mm. think it's, it's. I think we'd sometimes get a bit fussy with our palate with what That's we true. eat. That's true. Yeah. But and we just stick them in the fire. So it's rake the coals, a very traditional um, Aboriginal method of cooking, putting the fish in the in on the on the on the bottom, raking the coals. Um, over the top, you don't have to gut or scale the fish. Right. Um, the if you don't scale the fish, that stops it burning. And if you um, you don't have to gut it because the guts will just shrivel into a ball. Right. And so twenty they don't minutes. Don't the meat then or anything. No. Yeah, okay. you just have to stay away from that area when you cut cut it open. Mm. You won't win any awards at a restaurant for its presentation. <laughs> <laughs> There's no washing up, and it works really, really well. And the fish is beautifully cooked, mm. and do a lot of fish cooking like that or you can wrap it in paper bark if there's paper bark as well when you then you can gut the fish and get the um get the guts out Mm -hmm. and wrap it in paper bark make and then make sure this paper bark's been soaked in water so it doesn't burn wrap them up tie it up and then you can cook in exactly the same way so is that on the embers or is it under the fire that would still be within and whether you're covering those paper bark parcels or the uh the um the fish itself wrapped in it the whole idea is to um exclude the oxygen so it doesn't right. doesn't burn mm-hmm. so the uh so you're not um, steaming it on top of the fire you're still going underneath and covering underneath. it right yeah mm-hmm. you um you can cook a fish over the top that way but mm-hmm. that's um that's my favorite way of cooking or you can stick them in a ground oven mm-hmm. but generally 20 minutes works 
really, really well like that. But the idea is, yeah, to exclude all oxygen, just cover it with ash and coals. And Aboriginal people do lots of their lots of their cooking like that. Yeah. Um, uh, cooking in the ash is same with your damper. As long as you exclude the oxygen, so nothing can burn. There's no problem. Yep. And the uh, scales prevent it burning, and it's yeah, it's it's easy to cook. Works really real quick. A big fish though, that would be too big. I, I would I would gut. Right. A small fish. We're talking about medium size. You know, foot foot and a half. Yes. Um, long fish. And no, that works works tremendous. So we get the opportunity of doing that Norforce on our patrols, depending on you know what what the activity in the area is, but mm. also on our exercises, our survival courses, because we get a lot of Aboriginal uh, communities that will come in on our survival course and show us traditional method right. methods of cooking um, for the for the for the soldiers doing their training. That must be fascinating for you, given your long interest in all of those skills and. That way of life to be able to still be learning from those people because i i mean again for people who don't know i mean my understanding as limited as it is is that the the aboriginal knowledge is more intact in the north than it is further south is that is that right yes yeah definitely um the with first settlement and after 1788 when uh, Europeans arrived pretty much the um, because this whole area was uh, down south and the eastern coast you could farm the land and mm -hmm. uh, that type of thing and it was remarked on many accounts that the um, the land down south looked like a, 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 um, a British estate and like a parkland because right. of the way Aboriginal people manage the land with their um, regularly burning and all that type of thing with no undergrowth, with lots of fields. And because the land up north wasn't farmable, the, the climate is very harsh and you can't swim in, uh, in the ocean, mm. where you can, you're just foolish if you do, mm -hmm. um, it wasn't settled. So mm -hmm. the Aboriginal culture remained intact up mm -hmm. north, mm -hmm. right across. Um, and when... And we've got right next to, in the Northern Territory, right next to, or not far, about 250 kilometres east of Darwin, we've got Kakadu National Park, mm -hmm. which is, uh, I work as an outdoor guide in there um, regularly, and that's 20,000 square kilometres. So that's separate to your North Force work, this is working yes. for a, a tour guiding company, is it? Yes, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. Territory Expeditions, and mm -hmm. um, there's a... Uh, a number of tour companies in Darwin. That was actually one of my reasons for going up there was mm. predominantly to be part of Norforce and to be part of a unit that actually has survival as one of their main things they do, working closely with Aboriginal communities where that culture still survives. Mm. And one of the best ways of... Um, I didn't want to... When I'm up there, I don't have anything to do with music whatsoever. Right. I'm not teaching, I'm not playing, mm -hmm. and uh, well, there's not a load of... Um, music playing up there that but I went up there to really uh, solely focus on Norforce and so what I do for work outside army they said we can do up to 100 150 days I a was year about to ask you that because it's not Norforce is a is a reserve regiment as well yeah so I do loads of time um, I do one contract a year on the ships as I am, mm -hmm. am now and uh, the rest of the time I'm up with the army so in between that I go outdoor guiding mm -hmm. And one of my reasons for doing that is it, it gets me out into Kakadu. I mm -hmm. get to visit Aboriginal communities, uh, taking people from all around the world, showing them Kakadu, Aboriginal art, 
talking about the the, the food, the taco mm-hmm. mixing with um, when we can different different groups, and and all around the whole area. So it's wonderful, and also gives me a good insight. Just many sort of mini expeditions, if you will, mm-hmm. and to get to go all over. So that that's fantastic. That was the other reason. I wanted to get up there and uh, the Binning people, which are the tra- traditional Aboriginal people of the Kakadu area, a lovely people. Mm-hmm. And the history uh, of the art that they have up, the history of culture, it's still very, very strong, their knowledge of the land. Even though it is dying all over Australia, it's, uh, it's still very much intact. Mm-hmm. So that coupled with Norforce has put me in, in, in an area where you actually have to be be in it so you know for half of the year that's where i am yeah and it's wonderful wonderful sounds fantastic and sounds like it's you know half the year for a lot of people is like 40 hours a week you know what they do and what you do up there sounds like it's a lot more immersive and takes a lot more of your time up than than a basic job so you're getting time but it's kind of multiplied because you're just fully fully immersed in it when you're there Oh, it's it's it's, yeah. it's fantastic, and there's there there is so much of it, and it's you've really got to get out into the communities, and it's and sometimes it takes a bit hard to break in. But mm. the great thing about Norforce is if a lot of our a lot of the guys, the soldiers in it, have come from some of the communities, and right mm. next to Kakadu, which is twenty thousand square kilometres, you've got Arnhem Land, and mm. that's all Aboriginal land. That's a hundred thousand square kilometres. Right. And that's right, the border that is the East Alligator River. Mm. And that's in pretty much from that boundary right across to um, the Cape. And uh, it's just all Aboriginal land. Mm. You know, it's a massive, massive area. And, and, and am I right in thinking it used to be quite difficult to get into Arnhem Land? You used to have to have special permissions? or It's still the it case. Still you, is, need yeah. a, you need a permit to get mm. in there. So I go in there guiding when we're doing some of our things into Arnhem Land, but mm. also being part of Norforce mm-hmm. we've um, because we actually have depots in Manangrita mm-hmm. and Remanginning uh, and Alcoa Island and many other places and Catherine we uh, a lot of our people a lot of our soldiers come from those communities right so we just had a ran a survival activity there last year in um, near Manangrita and that was fantastic mm-hmm. and we were out on the uh, land with one of our one of our guys from there and his family owns this beautiful tract of land mm. um, to the east of uh, Manangrita. And so we had a rent a survival activity there for a lot of the guys. And one of the days, one of the, a couple of the days, we went out with his family foraging for food, long yams, you know, cheeky yams, mm-hmm. which are the, the poisonous, uh, this uh, scoria bulbifera, the, the poisonous cheeky meaning poison, mm. in which case they need to be uh, pretty much roasted then grated and then leached in water for, for 24 hours to get rid of a lot of the alkaloids and things like that, and a lot of the toxicity that's still in those uh, in, in that yam, mm-hmm. whereas the long yam or Discoria transversa, which is still, a, you can get in New South Wales as well, it's slightly different, not as big, where that can be eaten raw, and that's and that they, they are absolutely delicious. Mm. So we spent a day foraging for those and uh, a few, few other bush tuckers and fishing and just cooking them up traditionally turtles long neck turtles and lots of long bums and just seeing them uh, how they cook them on the fire just the, this it's very simplistic cooking but very sophisticated at the same time just mm. the way it's it's really elegant it's just it's it's it's, it's amazing actually so do you mean simplistic in the sense that they're not using a lot of implements yeah but 
sophisticated in what how they use the fire is that what you mean yes how the choice of wood right where they cook in the fire um it's the length of time cooking Mm -hmm. and the preparation of what they're doing how they use ash and what parts and they won't cook certain things in certain hot coals and it's it depends on the on the group you go to and some will favor a a ground oven that might be a bed of coals some sand palm leaves as a base put down or paper bark wet paper bark food put on top then more paper bark put on top and then sealed in as a ground oven that way and they'll cook that way where other people will prefer to dig a pit in the ground and they'll there's a few different ways depending on where you go and how they use fire and how they cook mm. boiling was actually a reasonably uh, recent thing in only since with the pots and pans and things yeah. like that okay but other than that, um, they, it's uh, lots of steaming. Steaming was done, but it's mm. it's uh, fascinating watching them cook. And uh, yeah, it's uh, no washing up afterwards. But it's <laughs> it's no, it's fantastic. That's probably one of my favourite things that I also always wanted to see and be a part of up there. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I've got a picture in my mind to an extent of what Arnhem Land and and Kakadu are like. But can you for again for listeners that are maybe not familiar with what that terrain looks like would you mind giving a sort of brief verbal sketch of what it's like up there in terms of you know terrain vegetation you know if, the, if it's lots of water or if it's really arid or you know just what it's like up there so people have got a picture in their mind and i know kakadu and arnhem land are not exactly the same so you know well it's sort of classed as tropical savanna mm. and it's but it's not tropical when most people think of tropical. I think of like the tropical rainforest mm. at the top um, northeast of Queensland. But it's not like that at all. That's where you're heavily, you know, beautiful um, rainforest. But like, it's not like, like the like Dane that, tree and the, all those yeah. fan palms and all those sorts of things. Yeah. And that's yeah. beautiful country. Yeah. But it's nothing like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's almost like dry meets that, that rainfall. Mm. But it's uh, it's more characterised by uh, you get uh, that hot weather coming from the south, but it's incredibly humid now. The it's very sparse, open woodland, mm-hmm. and that's also because of they um, have always fired up there and fire stick farmed. So every two years they'll they'll burn. So a lot of the the understory, like they'll have the um, spear grass, which will grow to three metres high during the wet season, and the, it grows incredibly quickly. And you see the place in the wet season; it's just it's just green, and you just it's impenetrable because of the water, and it's crazy. Yet a few months later, it's dead and barren, mm. very dry, very hot, and it can be a dust bowl in places. You wouldn't mm. recognise it as the same place. Um, and there's two plants that typ- typify the top, and that's the pandanus, pandanus spiralis, which or screw pine. There are two or three different varieties: aquaticus, which grows in the water. Spiralis, which is a common one, very prickly, great food source, great for string making, a whole stack of things you can use that for, as well as the sand palm on the Livestonia, Livestonia humilis, which is a, a smaller version. We've got them around here, but it's, uh, it's very, sort of has a Jurassic look to it, once mm. again, a good food source, but very, very barren and very dry. Lots of termite mounds up mm. to about... Um, four meters high some of them huge about 30 years old Mm. and uh massive and it's almost like a moonscape in places but it's uh 
in the wet season, it's completely overgrown. But in the in the dry season, if you can imagine very sparse open woodland with fires running through it all the time and they burn regularly mm. as they have done for thousands of years. And the, the reason for doing that is that they light fires at a very particular time of year and that's usually just after the wet when the, the, the spear grass still has a little bit of green in it so they're known as cool fires. So they burn very slow, only generally burn the height of the vegetation that they burn at the height of the vegetation they're consuming. Mm. Very slow, animals have got time to get away usually and they burn different patches every year so it sort of creates a a different tapestry of different size vegetation which would attract different animals which they traditionally would hunt Mm. but it also they burn at that particular time of year because left later in the year and left unchecked for a couple of years the undergrowth would be quite significant and later in the year with the hot weather and the extra dryness, those fires will burn at a much greater ferocity right. and be much more devastating to all the, the trees and the wildlife, mm-hmm. which are, are geared towards fire. They're all like a lot of the paperbarks and the um, Darwin woolly butts, the, um, the, the, the gums there. They've all mm-hmm. got blackened stumps. They've grown to evolve to be, to be used to fire, and a lot of the, the vegetation needs it for germination. Mm. So they're very particular and when they burn, and they were like that across all of Australia, the whole country was like that. Mm-hmm. But sadly, they actually don't continue that practice that once the culture died out down here and was destroyed, there was no one left to tend the land and manage it the way it was at North. And consequently, that's one of the reasons I believe we still have these horrendous fires we've been having because that land isn't being managed the way so it you should get be. So you get this build-up of tinder and kindling and firewood, basically, and then it gets dry and it all goes. Yeah, yep. and later on the year, the, the ferocity of the fires and the heat is much, much stronger than what it would be earlier in the mm. year. Mm-hmm. And so that so same fire in the same area would be much more devastating to the environment. Mm. Mm-hmm. But they don't let that happen. And that was the case all over Australia and the whole the fields. And a lot of that was the case. A lot of the early explorers remarked how, as I said, the country looked like an English park or an estate mm. with no undergrowth because it was all continually burnt off. Mm. So very, very interesting. So that's, and during the dry season, when um, I've got, I usually have a group of 15 when I'm tour guiding and, and outdoor guiding into these places, and, and often for us, we drive through many fires and, and just where they just let go. And But there you could walk, you could literally walk across that fire front. It's not, it's, they don't burn any right. faster than that. It mm-hmm. sounds very destructive, but within a couple of weeks, it shoots animals and you wouldn't recognize a place and it's just uh it's just been happening for so long mm. and uh a lot of the uh the, the species need that fire for to you know for regeneration yeah. as they do all over australia yeah no that's fascinating and, and as they do in other parts of the world too i mean i've talked about it before you know in in canada you know some of the some of the species there like jack pine for example it needs a certain amount of heat for the the cones to open to drop the seed and you've got fireweed of course which many people are familiar with rose bay willow herb that is often called in in the uk that's again, the pink flower that's one, the pink flowered yeah. one yeah epilobium in the evening primrose family you know and i've seen it in the uk in areas that have been cleared i've used to get it a lot on the sides of railway cuttings and i think you still do in in some places where they're not kind of just cut back all the time because of course our railways used to ha- there used to be a lot of coal and cinders and stuff on the tracks and so i think they really liked that habitat 
so there's something about the the chemical you know constituency of the soil that they like but also they need the heat for germination and I saw a um, an area in Canada uh, the year before last now we're just in 2020 we keep doing this last year no the year before now in 2018 we did a canoe trip where there'd been quite a lot of fires in an area um, not long before we were going through and there was an area where it was just a scene of kind of black and devastation all through the understory some of the smaller trees had gone up as well the bigger trees were, were okay it seemed but it must have been I would say less than two weeks since that fire and there were already you know fireweed coming up and flowering you know within that period of time there was just this lovely fresh green and pink in amongst all this black and charred moonscape otherwise and yeah so they and they're just up and all the cones on the jack pine were were open and they dropped the seeds because apparently they need 50 to 55 degrees c direct heat as a minimum for the cones to open to drop the seeds and so they can remain dormant for a long yeah, time yeah i think they? about 30 or 40 years they yeah. can stay dormant on the on the branches yeah just closed up waiting waiting for the right moment so yeah so it's it, it's one of those things there's lots of fire adaptation around these environments that are have traditionally had fire as part of that ecosystem so yeah it's very it's interesting to see and hear about how the indigenous peoples here have integrated with that and you mentioned a book to me that you um that yeah, i should Bill read gabbage the yeah. um the biggest estate on earth mm. and that's fantastic and that goes into how aborigines um created the estate of, of australia of how how it was managed and there's lots we don't know about that and it's only coming to light now mm. how they where they will well the attitude at the time was that the beautiful land that the guys were just running walking through aimlessly not using the land that was a misconception but it was anything but that mm. it was a, a thorough understanding of the land of the 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 life cycles of the plants and animals and they burnt to this there was fields of, of grass not as we know it today but but grass like most all of australia's grass seeds are edible mm. um, we've got wild rices in fact there's a whole plethora of, of wild do, food that do, we could be um harvesting do you have any problems with ergot here no yeah. we don't okay mm-hmm. that's um all the seeds here to my knowledge are all edible we don't have mm. that um that fungus here mm. and so a lot of the seeds they they ate and ground into flour and made my you know dampers and breads mm-hmm. lots of wild rices as well as all you know the mobile foods and and, and hunting and fire was a huge part of that. Like, mm. uh, like just with some of the banksias around here, fire, they need that to germinate. And the seeds, the edible seeds and the banksia cones need fire so you can, you can get them out. And in fact, mm. there's a lot of Aboriginal foods or, or, or natural foods that when you talk to some Aboriginal people, you wonder how to eat certain things because it tastes horrible. And you realise where if you put it on the fire, the fire opens it and then gets rid of the... Um, the irritating hairs or the um, some of the the, the the moisture in it, the poisonous moisture, mm-hmm. but, and then you, and then it's consumable. Right. And there are many things like that that they just learnt to use fire for. And uh, most things need to be a lot of things need to be cooked first and roasted. There's many many a lot of the acacia seeds need that, and there that's a great food source, one of the, or the best ones. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, those seeds and there a lot of the the uh, those foods are bush foods. 
some of them, what you probably term as superfoods, now they're beginning to make their way onto the market and finally, after 200 year, odd years, they're now starting to recognise the value of a lot of these wonderful foods and I think it's the only one that was marketed was macadamia nut, you know, mm. and that was actually taken to Hawaii. But there's so many foods now and they're making their way into the kitchen with all the, you know, the big boom in, in cooking shows in right. the last 10 yeah. years. And now the fascination and with traditional foods. A, bo- a boom and a, globally, I think, with including wild foods in restaurants and cooking as well. So not necessarily as a staple, but people like adding bits of wild food in, don't they? And I, I mentioned to you before we started recording, I went back to the Melbourne Museum yesterday, uh, somewhere I've been to many times, but they have a garden out the back which is tended by, you know, it's an Aboriginal garden and it's full of trees and plants that have some uses to the like the Boon Wurrung people mainly here in Victoria and yeah it's fascinating to to look to look through all of all of that stuff and one of them there as well as all the traditional uses one of the notes it said on the on the information placard was and this has become popular as a sort of modern bush tucker in even in restaurants now so yeah that's that's kind of well it is and it isn't i mean i think it it's it's great that people are interested in wild foods but i think it's not great if there is exploited if it's been exploited exactly yeah 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 and so. i think it's things like macadamia with proper respect yeah you're right and i think that that's actually happening as well it's uh um there is problems with those type of things happening but yeah so. i mean it's overuse that sort of literal physical exploitation absolutely but also you know when you've got traditional knowledge and we're going and asking for people to share freely and then somebody else is going and monetizing it that's i don't know i don't know where that puts us ethically you know in terms of some communities i know if that money's or the proceeds of that are going back into the community mm. and that community has a part in the development a guy named john newton wrote a book called the oldest foods on earth mm. And he goes, a very good book actually, and he goes into and explore all these foods we have in Australia and how they're just pretty much shunned and passed off for, you know, a couple of hundred years and not regarded, but now all of a sudden, you know, and how that that exploitation happened with a few of them Mm. and how that was starting to happen, but now a lot of Aboriginal people want sort of some involvement in that process mm. and they're mm-hmm. trying to look at that. So that is beginning beginning to happen. So mm. that that's, Good. Yeah. and so a lot of communities involved in the, some of them, the harvesting of those food crops in it, which are going to market. Mm-hmm. But of course, it's, it's only just in its infancy now and mm. it's just starting. But I think the attitude um, is changing. Uh, uh, which is probably is a good thing. Yeah, I think that's a good thing. And there's yeah. loads. Just look at the number of books and wild food books in Australia. Yes. I never more used to more. see any of no. those. Well, I've, I mean, I've been coming to Australia for, for more than a decade. And I remember when I initially came, I could get hold of a few of Les Hidden's books, perhaps, on Bush Tucker, but there was nothing else. And that, as you say, it was all focused largely on more what was going on in the top end. There wasn't a lot down here in terms of wild food books or information you know you could get a few sort of ethnographical things and you could find out a little bit by coming to places like botanical gardens and they have sections where there's more information on some of the 
indigenous uses but it's it, it's certainly sort of potted and incomplete and it doesn't necessarily always focus on food and yeah now there is this it seems like there is this upswing in interest and upswing in available books that have managed to collate a good amount of information so it's interesting yeah, yeah, how that's I, changed i think that's great and with i mean that's good for bushcraft as well absolutely and yeah. uh and just some of the uh, only just richard graves australian bushcraft which mm-hmm. was like a um, an offshoot to the original 10 bushcraft books I just saw in a store the other day which is being reprinted and mm-hmm. think, oh fantastic yes so I mean it is a it's quite an old publication but it was uh, yeah it's it's fantastic well the skills the skills don't grow old though do they I mean you know maybe some of the references to some of the equipment like you read you read some of the old woodcraft and camping books from the states and Canada from you know the late 19th century and early 20th century all the actual bushcraft skills and campcraft skills and woodcraft skills are as relevant today as they were then but some of the references to certain types of canvas tents and mm. ways of sleeping and they're kind of out bags and dilly bags yeah and yeah, like yeah. but but the thing is like certain things just carry on through don't they and so it's great to see that information still still available and we haven't talked about swags and stuff yet and we should definitely talk about sleeping out in the Australian bush one of the things I wanted to ask you about because we've talked about the land and we've talked about you know eating snails and crabs and fish and some plants but what about water I mean water's another big issue isn't it in some parts of the Australian Definitely. bush in terms of getting good drinking water or getting any drinking water so tell me your experiences with how easy it can be to or how hard it can be to get drinking water in in different parts of australia what strategies there are what you've learned from the military what you might have learned from aboriginal peoples in terms of getting that essential fluid that you need and well that's well waters as you know three days the old rule of threes Mm. three days without water but up there north that could be you know, the wrong three hours almost. I mean, people have died within a day from not having enough water mm. or, you know, and the right equipment, clothing and shelter mm-hmm. against the sun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is, I would, I would put it above, yeah, shelter, mm. you know, uh, well, protection from the sun, that sort of shelter yeah. in the heat because if you if you don't manage your water or have enough, you're, you're in trouble. And when I'm guiding, before we walk across escarpment country or things like that, I'm getting people to pretty much almost skull... Uh, you know a, a lot of water then refill their water bottles and rehydrate before they go out on walks mm-hmm. so the water's in their system not just in their water bottle because there's so many uh, survival or tragedies that have happened through australia through people perishing when they've had four water bottles because they've sipped their water mm. not drunk it and say 200 mil lots and that's i think it used to be in a lot of books you know sip, sip to conserve your water but it should be ration your sweat not your water and drink water in 200 mil lots because if you drink it any less and sip it over a period of time your vital organs aren't getting that water so the the general rule of thumb now is to drink the water when you've got it yeah and it's much more useful to your body where before the people would sip it if you've got one of those hydration packs and enough yeah constant sipping but the sipping that used to be you know you've got two liters of water to last you two days i'll drink a little bit and you know little sips over every hour or something your your vital organs aren't getting it much better to drink it in those and you, you you're going to last longer that way mm. now we're supplied a lot of the time with water in the military we're on north force patrols and things like that we go to some remote areas but sometimes you or you're not always 
So are they, are, they, are they put out as caches or how? We'll, sometimes yeah. we'll cache yeah. our own, own gear and come in, you know, bury it or mm. hide it and things like that as, as, it, as to get back to. Um, other times you're resupplied at different times. Sometimes you're not, mm-hmm. in which case you have to, you know, being able to source water, depending on where you are, like a lot of the, um, the northern areas up there, a lot of the beachfronts have casharinas or she-oaks and they love fresh water, so they're a good indicator. And actually, Captain Cook and a lot of the early explorers used to um, use those. The, the, that sort of they have this particular hue and colour to them, and they would see those on the a lot of the northern beaches. And they and behind the first row, behind the um, there's often paperbark swamps, mm-hmm. and they used to dig wells behind those casharinas. I've seen the same thing in. Um, when I'm working on the ships in the Bahamas because they used to use, or they still do, the Australian Casherine as she-oaks for dune stabilisation over there. And they only grow as lots of fresh water. And and if you dig down, not in all places, you might have to dig in eight different places, you know, to dig down to find you'll find fresh water and Mm -hmm. float on top of, you know, be brackish and float on top. X doesn't mark the spot for everything. You might have to dig in a number of places. Mm. And they used to be wells that that a lot of early explorers used to come, come back to. And just in areas, whether in Torres Strait Islands, I've seen, you know, wells, and you find pigs, pigs will dig in there as well. Right. But if there's pigs, that means they've got all the yams, so long yams, which are really prevalent in a lot of areas. Great to eat, but you're lucky finding them because the pigs have pretty much uh, destroyed mm. everything. They'll mm. get and rooted. So they're like feral pigs, are they? That all over yeah. the north, sadly mm. to say. So it's hard to get a lot of these traditional bush, bush tuckers with all the animals that we've introduced. It's just destroyed one of the last the Norfolk course last year we were loads of vines you see from the long yam coming down and then do, and then you go and they've already been dug out by pigs right it's, and then they're a great food source and mm-hmm. it's, it's trying to find something it hasn't is is difficult but so finding water we were I was in a, a patrol and we couldn't get resupplied um, and so one of the other methods we teach is water transpiration as mm-hmm. far as finding water mm-hmm. and some areas are, there might be you think in flood conditions in the in the wet season you'd be amazed at six months later you'd never think it had water at all right so in that case the transpiration bag the clear plastic bags are really really efficient up there mm-hmm. and concentrating so, on so for people that have not come across that technique before can you explain a little bit about it because one of the things i remember years ago when i i'd seen pictures of it in the book but it's often hard to tell the scale of what's going on in a book. And when I first saw a photograph of somebody applying that technique, I was surprised at the size of the polythene bag that was being used. And I think it's easy to look at a sketch in an old book and think mm. that they're using a sandwich bag or something. But So could you explain a little bit more about that yeah. technique, the yield, any concerns in terms of whether you put it on poisonous trees or wet, which ones yield more and just any tips you've got there, that'd be great. Well, the, uh, the process works by taking a clear plastic bag. It won't work as a, a black plastic, but like a garbage bag. The bigger, the better. And something that's thick that's not going to rip because the idea is you're you using the plant's process of photosynthesis and the plant, the tree or sapling, drawing water up from the ground and it disperses that moisture out um, into the atmosphere through its leaves and what we're doing is trapping that dispersal by putting a, a clear plastic bag over a branch and sealing so it's an airtight seal so we're effectively creating a greenhouse and what mm. happens is that water that's pumped up 
from the ground and being dispersed is being captured inside the plastic bag. Um, it condenses on the inside and setting it up correctly so that you've got to say the point of the bottom of the bag at, at the lower end that'll drip down in into the b bottom of that bag. You need to have in the southern hemisphere so we need to have a north facing aspect so sun pretty much travels you know across the sky in the northern part of the sky from east to west below the tropic of Capricorn however up in Darwin being 12 degrees south that changes so past <laughs> October it becomes the um, southern part of the sky when that that gets into a natural nav and that's when it gets confusing up there but it's um, interesting so pretty much it needs to be in the sun all day uh, the best trees to do this on are all wattle trees or acacias and all gum trees eucalypts in Australia are the best for this they're the most widespread and common and they produce good yields and the best yield I've had um, from, from these trees I've had up to 700 mils in a day mm. And you from can one bag from one bag, right? And mm. that's I'm talking about a big. I mean, you can a big garbage bag. Yeah. So garbage bag size, clear plastic bag. Yeah. And clear plastic, mm -hmm. preferably one without pleats. If they've got pleats in, they don't work too well, and you can't get that nice corner. You can. There are some versions where you put a sump in. I personally don't feel that's needed. And if you've got a small bag, it just takes up more space. Mm. And all it is, it just means give the branch a shake before you put the bag on so there's no nasties in there and uh, insects and things. However, they just generally be a bit of extra protein. <laughs> and from all acacias and gums, that water is drinkable mm. straight off. So um, within a day. Now, you can drain that off and let that plant and let that branch go into consumption um, production again the next day. However, after you want to take it off because you will eventually kill the branch and just mm -hmm. shift branches. Now, you could pick two different saplings, same as will give you two different yields. You could pick a, a bushy branch. You want something you can get as many leaves in, mm -hmm. so it's got the, the more drawing capacity. And you could have a, uh, a bit large tree, gum tree, with a side branch, bushy side branch, will generally produce more water because it's got the drawing capacity of a larger root system. Right. Or a sapling, um, however, I've had saplings that'll produce, you know, just as much. And sometimes you just can't tell. You could mm -hmm. have the, you know, the perfect spot, but not the perfect tree, and, and vice versa. And the, the yields are different, or great yield, and then the the sun comes over in cloud, and it won't work so well. So you mm -hmm. need good sunlight. And if you get a few of those bags in your car, it really is. Um, the beauty of it is, once it's set up, you don't have to do anything more. You can go into sleep, and you can carry on with other tasks. And in nature, does it work for you? Yes, yes. And you don't need to boil it because, again, that's the thing people can do. I need to boil it. Do I need to purify it? Do I need to put it through a filter? That's that's all. That's good to drink. Now, as far as you wouldn't pick a toxic tree, so with trees it whether it's um opposite leaves and some of the you know the poison indicators you're really looking at it's what's on the outside of the leaves and what's mm. going to get into that water once it condenses so if it any alkaloids or any say chemicals that have thing once you've got that water that will be in the same category as i guess water that you've got out of a water source that is chemically chemically polluted yes, in indeed. which case will be um, activated charcoal which yes. would be the thing to get yeah, rid of it if you could get rid of it at all yeah 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 some of the so some i wouldn't of the choose lighter, a toxic the, the lighter toxins are harder to to get rid of yeah yeah so acacias aka wattles yep um, and eucalypts of eucalypts. which there are lots yeah i mean yeah. there's loads i yeah. mean Casharinas, mm -hmm. she oaks right. work mm -hmm. up north. Um, green plums work really well. Mm -hmm. Banksias work really well oh, too. Okay. That's, that's good they to work. Know. However, 
the Banksia serrata because because it's got yeah. pointy leaves, you're going to puncture your bag. So you want to. Yeah. There are some plants that would work. There's many non-toxic trees, but because they're not bushy and have lots of foliage, the Gross. yield is going to be less. Low. Yeah. So generally speaking, most gums are the ones to go for. That's good to or, know. Or wattles. So you're always carrying those big plastic bags in your survival kits and your and my backpack. In backpack. fact, I've got a I've got one right here actually. Okay. Not just that you can in, see just it. in case we get stranded in Melbourne Botanical Gardens and we need probably some. so. There's many <laughs> different. That's one of the. Oh one. yeah. So they're reasonably yeah. heavy duty. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to take a picture of you with that, and then people that are listening to this can have a look at the page. The um, hardest thing is getting them. Well, <laughs> don't, don't, give, these in <laughs> don't give your supplier away. <laughs> you don't won't. work well. <laughs> so that's just in there. It's a matter of course in my packs anywhere. That's be cut open for a shelter as well, really, if you need to be. Some of the thin ones, I've had ones that are thin, and I've just got so many punctures in them. And then you've got, you know, if you've got your duct tape and other part of your kit, you're forever trying to fix them up. And that's and trying to get that seal. And most students on our courses get a really good good deal. And they really like that experiment and they mm -hmm. love tasting it at the end. And um, yeah, you could put a little bit of nectar in there. It doesn't taste thing. too bad then. No, it's just got that um, you know, gum, it has that sort of nice eucalypt taste. Yeah, okay. And it's it you know, you sometimes you get the odd ant in there and things like that. It's well, not they're, really they're a all drama. edible anyway, so <laughs> it's um, sometimes you get them tannin. If you've got a smaller bag, you will get leaves in, then you'll get some of the tannin from the leaves. Right. But I haven't had a, a problem. I'm still here today, and I'm always drunk lots of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So when you say courses, because you're doing the North Force courses, but you've also got we haven't talked about it at all. You've also got Bushcraft Survival Australia as well, because you don't like to be busy at all, do you, Gordon? No, you know? that's, <laughs> life's too short to be <laughs> to be bored. <laughs> So tell us a bit about Bushcraft Survival Australia. And then I'll, I've got some other questions about the, the Australian bush for you that I'm sure people would be interested to hear the answers to. So. Um, well, after I joined Norforce, and one of the reasons for me is that in doing a, a number of courses, I knew that I wanted someday. I was, I've done a few of the courses in Australia, and bushcraft hasn't always been huge in Australia. Not, not loads of schools and... It's more out of frustration, really, and it's just a passion. I love teaching, being an ex-teacher, and I just mm -hmm. love that subject. And when I was in England, did a bit of uh, uh, Duke of Edinburgh, and you know, and, and love that. And so, I set about learning as much as I possibly could, and immersing myself to, to to learn as much as I could about the subject matter, which I'll never ever learn enough of. It just the more you learn, you just think, well, I know mm -hmm. nothing, and there's so much to to go, and it's just such a big umbrella, as you know. And so it was one day I wanted to get enough to, to start a, a school in Australia mm. and to sort of probably share some of the things that I've learnt. And so I started um, BSA, it was only a couple of years ago, so it's only in, in its infancy and it pretty much, I guess it's a hybrid of many things I've learnt from many other schools of, of uh, subjects, but trying to obviously gear it towards the Australian environment. Mm. But, uh, and wanted to learn from as many people as I could to learn as m many schools as I could mixed with my teaching um, as a school teacher and just the love of the subject and I really, really love love the subject and I love teaching it and I, particularly with children teaching kids and seeing the love they get from not just learning a, a, a survival skill probably the, the biggest reward I get is from people that come to learn a survival skill because it's something they have to do to have them walk away and getting a completely different 
interest and thinking, wow, this is so much deeper than survival and getting a love of the, the plants, a lot of a, the actual subject itself and bushcraft, and then that goes way deeper than any sort of just um, not saying that it's a survival side, it's superficial, but it's sort of a one, it's like a one focused mm. attitude. You know, it's not just keeping you alive, it's actually much more in depth than that. Yes. I look at survival as the. Uh, Bushcraft is a parent subject that survival comes from, mm. and to see them have that love and war, and then they want to come back. All of a sudden, they've got an interest in natural navigation, and they gain a respect for the environment, which I think it's so important. And that's what I love the most, and that was my reason for starting the school. And there's only a couple of um, good schools in Australia, and well, it's not that many actually. It's just starting mm. to grow, and mm. I think people's interest in bushcraft is just starting to grow in Australia. I think it's it's bushcraft and the subject of bushcraft is much, uh, it seems to be much stronger in other countries, mm. uh, particularly in the north. And maybe it's, I'm not sure, in England, I know it's like the mecca for bushcraft. At the moment, <laughs> it's <laughs> nothing ever stays the same. And I'm thinking maybe because there's not as many wild open places that people can go and experience things. So maybe that's why there's many more courses where here. I get the feeling that there's all these wild and open, wonderful places, but mm-hmm. maybe a lot of Aussies, I think, just take that for granted. Yeah, I'm maybe sure. they maybe they do. Maybe they do. And I think I think that's part of it. And I think part of it is um, maybe the colonial history of Britain and as coming from a small place with a certain climate and sending people all over the world for trade and for warfare and for colonialism. And them needing to be able to adapt. And criminals as and well. And criminals, yeah, yeah. There's some good You were st- telling me that when you came through the airport, the, the, <laughs> the customs officer asked you, did you, uh, did you have a criminal record to which you replied, I didn't know I still needed one? <laughs> That's true. That's true. No, it isn't. <laughs> they, they were actually very, very friendly. The, um, you know, because you, you, you come into, because Australia's, you know, it's, uh, we're going off on a tangent now, but Australia's got a reputation for being a bit hard ass at the border. You know, mm. whether it's immigration or whether it's bringing contraband substances in, and I'm not talking about drugs or just, you know, wooden things for, that you've got on holiday, you're bringing back in, you know, that haven't been fumigated and all those, or, or fruit that you've been mm. given on the aircraft. But if you try and bring it through customs, you'll, you'll, you know, you'll be arrested. Have to go through, they getting off the ship today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, th- th- you're pretty strict in some of those respects, but. I have to say, compared to, say, going to the US, where the customs officials, sorry if I'm offending any really pleasant US customs officials listening to this, but they're generally quite unpleasant to deal with and quite officious. Your customs guys are super nice, super friendly, really professional. And yeah, it's always a pleasure arriving. You feel welcome when you arrive, long as you don't have... Mm. A criminal record or bananas. And New Zealand's the or, same. They're even, yeah. I think, more stringent than what we are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, but there's a reason because we don't have many diseases and there's no. many things we don't have. So they're just being overly yeah, protected, you, which is a good yeah, thing. No, it yeah. is. It is. I mean, you've learned from other people's mistakes. You know, in terms of you know other parts of the world, there's a lot of introduced invasive species. There's agricultural diseases, all sorts of things that are being passed over and. Rightly so, you're trying to limit the the spread of those things by controlling them at the border, and that makes sense because we're, you know, we're free to rove around in a way that we've never been able to do before in in you know in the history of humanity, and 
we, we carry things on our shoe if we're not careful. So, mm. um, yeah, I, I get it. It makes sense. How did we get onto that tangent, Gordo? We went off down there. Talking about criminals. <laughs> criminals. <laughs> <And> how, <laughs> who, who was sent out to Australia? Yeah, and how did we get there? I've literally I'm lost my thread. So we were... <laughs> We're talking about the different people that came this uh, as far as yeah, bushcraft yeah, and colonialism. colonialism. So I think perhaps, uh, and this is one of the things that Lisa Fenton's talked about a fair bit. A fair bit. So if you haven't listened, people listening to this, if they're not listening to my conversation with Lisa about um, the, the history of bushcraft, as it were. That's fantastic that, that's, interview, by the way. Yeah, that. thank you. Then there's some good stuff there. But yeah, we did have this history of colonialism, colonial warfare, colonial trade, colonial settlement. And then you had people coming back from that with certain skills and some of them codified it. People like Baden-Powell, who started the scouting movement, um, who stole, seemed to have stolen some ideas off people like Ernest Thompson Seton in terms of that movement, but also went through his experiences as a scout in the Boer War and learned things from people like Frederick Russell Burnham and then came back and thought, well, actually, some of these things were... Because, uh, partly, um, young people were reading his actual military manual and, I guess, maybe in the same way that we read mm. Lofty Wiseman's Survival Handbook, he wrote a Scouting for Boys. And so that then... When she got a copy of that yeah. in to read. That's on my list to do in the next month or so. So, <laughs> so that then, you know, brings us full circle where those people are bringing those skills back and then it's being codified and taught locally not necessarily with any intention of it being used further afield it's just a study that's worthwhile in its own right and i guess going back to the martial arts that we're both interested in um, and have a history in people like jigoro kano took elements of different styles of jiu-jitsu mm, and turned it into judo which wasn't really designed for going out and applying in warfare maybe in the same way that some of the jiu-jitsu and aikijutsu styles had been, but was more for the benefits of the study in its own right. Yes. You know, and the, the benefits that you would get as the a child. The art side of it. The art mm. side, or just the, the, the personal development that comes from the study of the art is an end in itself. And I think to that extent, the, there are elements of that in bushcraft within the UK it's something that we enjoy studying as a subject, regardless of whether or not we're going to go out to wild places and apply them. Mm, it's almost like Bushido in itself, in exactly. a way, yeah. bushcraft. Yeah. So, but equally, for me, one of my interests has always been coming to new places. And yes, the core skills are going to get you so far. You know, the, the widely applicable bushcraft skills will get you so far, and the principles, but then... The vegetation's different, the weather's different, you're south of the equator or south of the tropics rather than north and the natural nav needs to change or be modified and there's always more to learn in that respect. So yeah, I think you can go a certain distance with that core skill set that you can teach anywhere, but then you've got to come to these places and experience them and learn what you can in these places as well, otherwise you can't fully apply here in oh, a way definitely. that you can we had D dave canberra was out last year and um yes last year <laughs> oh, i can't get over that yet and 
And I remember when we were doing the natural navigation, Dave was doing teaching some sessions on that and how that was really, um, he said, that was how different it was mm. to be in the, the southern hemisphere carrying out a lot of those same experiments. And then to be within Darwin where that changes, where sometimes the north becomes to the south. Yes. And the other element you've got when you're telling time with natural navigation is that the, the northern territory is on this stupid, weird half hour thing. So we actually, the, one of the time zones is on the half hour, not the full hour. Oh, and so, right, all you, yeah. so all your experiments with the equation of time are out. So what actually is solar noon, even taking away daylight saving, is actually almost, you know, it's 50 minutes to an hour later than where it should be. And when you look on a, you do your experiments without, which is hard to explain without seeing it, you, when you're setting out your uh, your first shadow, your first shadow that a stick will cast, which is your westerly marker, and then your second one after that. And of course, if you measure that regularly every hour, you'd have uh, over the course of a day, you'd get a nice, accurate east west line, which is either um, straight line or concave or um, convex, depending on where you are and what time of year it is. You can also, you know, work out midday from the shorter shadow. But up there, when you do that, um, you realise that midday on the clock is, is nowhere near it. It's mm. actually almost an hour out because of that, and it's really strange. But they've come up with that because of where Adelaide and Darwin are pretty much situated because that's where most of the population is, and so that's why they've done the um, that sort of um, time zone time there. Zone, yeah. but, it's, um, but the other way, yeah, it's quite interesting with, um, with how that works. So when you're trying to use that method around October when the sun comes over the top, it's it's quite quite difficult then the next day to literally over you know subtly you can see it's on that side so mm. it's it's uh so you've got to be harder. aware that change is is going yeah, on yeah knowing what time of the the year that is other so than that a bit after or before the equinox depending on which way you're going is that right yeah so the 21st of september would have been when it was over the equator yep and then roughly around mid October is when it's um, over Darwin, and then the far south, as far south as the sun goes, well, yep. it's us moving, is Tropic of Capricorn, 23 yep. and a half degrees south. Yep. So any any further below that, obviously the sun's always going to be to our north. Yes. So that sort of does my head in up there, but you've just got to know when that is. Yep. And then it comes back again. And then comes back. And then yep. 21st of March this year, it'll be back over um, the equator. Mm before that so it constantly changes so you have to remember that when you're doing those experiments up there but um but it's fun though it's, mm. it's sort of it's all interesting but um yeah that's one of those things but and i suppose that was one of the reasons that led me into the the whole bushcraft thing and just being outdoors and teaching it so we teach yeah. a bit of nav natural navigation in fact mm -hmm. we do a lot on the norforce courses and using mm -hmm. a shadow stick or what we call our nav stick so the same way you'd use a a compass or just a compass with this, say, without a map, mm. where you'd normally say line up a position once you've established your um, direction, which would be either through a compass or, in this case, the sun. Say, using the, sh the, the shadow stick. Um, obviously, the longer you wait to get that shadow, the more accurate that would be. Depending on, and however, there's a problem with that. If you're down near the period of the um, the solstice, when the the sun is further south or north depending on where you are of course mm -hmm. that line you're going to get is going to be a curved line from the start of a day and right at the end of the day and if you talk take your bearings 
and one at the morning and the afternoon, you're going to get a slightly different direction, right. up, out to 45 degrees out. Mm. So when we mark out those courses for the students, we have to be aware of that because they need to conduct their, their tests on their natural navigation mm. at the... Um, at the same time, we're actually setting out the course, if that makes sense. I know it's hard to, without seeing seeing it. Mm. Mm. So I, to get an accurate east-west line, you're better off knowing when... So if you know when sun rises and sun sets, if you do it the same amount of time after the sun's up and before the sun sets, you're going to get a straight line, aren't mm. you? Because you're going to be going... You're going to be spanning that arc. Yes. Whereas if you're closer to sunrise than sunset, you're going to get something that's off that straight line yeah. or or vice versa if it's closer to sunset than sunrise you're going to get something that spans the arc at a different angle yes so you need something that's more. symmetrical basically don't you yes yeah so either just before and after local noon which equates to the same thing the same amount of time after sunrise as before sunset you're going to get a straight yeah. you're going to get a and line parallel whole day you get yes or on either way which dave showed me actually which is a brilliant way which is uh lining up a stick at dusk so mm -hmm. when you're seeing the, the sun go down you've got a, a nice straight shadow stick and then you've got two other sticks of equal length you point um, a stick from the base of the shadow stick at the setting sun and then next morning when you get up you take another stick of this same length you place down the night before pointing it at sunrise and that gives you the exact same thing the two points yeah. over the course of a day and then just simply join those together in 90 degrees to yeah. that will be your north and south. Yeah. And you don't have to wait around the whole day. As long as you can see the horizon. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but that works. That, yeah. that works quite well. Yeah. And so what we do in Norforce, we have, and on our courses, we'll have a, a nav stick. And so when people are either using a, a, a compass for direction, um, we all have our nav stick. So once we've established direction, we'll put down our stick in the, in the, on the bearing we want to walk and we'll walk to whatever tree we can see in that. But we also use hand angles, you know, mm. 15 the sun moving 15 degrees an hour across the sky um, between fingers, knuckles. It'll got, you've got 15 down to 3, 8 degrees different without seeing it. And we use hand angles as well. But walking on a bearing that you put a stick down to that to that to whatever you're walking to and if it's a long legs you just pretty much put there so if you're walking from a to b before you get to b you'd put down that stick in line and that's your waypoint which case you'd have a rest walk off and come back and your stick still pointing in the direction that you're going to stand behind it line up line whatever up the next and you can keep on going that as, mm -hmm. as you need to and then if you lose direction or something then you just uh you have to carry out the whole shadow stick method again, the short method. Now, of course, it's not going to be as accurate as a as a compass. Mm. However, with practice and using your knuckles and, and your pacing being accurate and that sort of thing, you can actually do quite well. And we do the same exercise at night using celestial navigation and, and a nav stick, mm. walking legs at night, getting your pacing, walking in the direction of stars, working out where you want to go and then just simply finding a star that's above your destination and walking to that star. Right. If there's one there, if not, you sort of just find a landmark, find a landmark, yeah. or work out between other between stars which two. way you're walking. Yeah, and that actually is quite which quite you kind of have to do with the Southern Cross and the Pointers anyway, don't you? You, you don't have it as yeah. easy as we have in the North. There's you no know, Polaris. We, there's no, no Polaris. Um, you've got to kind of do this thing where you've got your your pointers and take halfway between the two and a line that's perpendicular, and then you take the line off the Southern Cross and where they meet is 
south yeah. which is a lot more complex than what we have mm. to do in the north so and there's a few other stars triangle and Astralis and different constellations so when that when that constellation is Dips set that, there yeah. are other ones yeah but that should be that even an army when you're navigating with map and compass and even out in a boat like um, there's the zodiacs on the boats that we and using some of those natural methods to check your yes. nav that's a, and you don't even have to look at a compass like you're looking at a bearing with a compass and you think explaining the guys will just follow this yeah. star that's online and my bearing i don't even have to look at my compass i can follow this yeah. star because i yeah. know for 20 minutes that's going to be fine well that's that's the thing that often people don't seem to recognize that natural navigation isn't mutually exclusive with other methods of navigation i mean you can use all of these things together as long as you understand the relationships between them and using a star for a, a period of time is no different to using a landmark in the distance mm. over time clearly it may move but over a period of time it's not going to move very much and it doesn't mean that you can't use those things i think a lot of people think that natural navigation is something you use when you don't have a map and compass or you don't have a gps and actually you can use all of these things together together yeah and you get more information and you're less likely to go wrong yeah i remember one got well, it was one patrol was exercise a few years ago we had a scout that was in front they had a particularly heavy left foot <laughs> and we kept on going off and i was couldn't and at the back and he's and and some, but when you hold a, a compass, you're just follow, following that around and he's in a walking the circle. Where really, if you just had a, a nice landmark with the stars, forget that and just follow that. That's you know, keep you online, yeah. And, um, yeah, because yeah. you can you can easily get onto a parallel track to your original bearing. If you t if you walk again, that's something people don't realize if unless they've done a lot of map and compass work. So, what Gordo is talking about is yes you can you'll walk in a circle if you don't have a compass but if you keep stepping left for example even if your compass needle is still over the right bearing you're going to be walking on a bearing that's parallel to the original route that you wanted to take and if you keep stepping left you're going to end up quite a long way parallel to where you originally intended so having some sort of landmark as well as knowing the bearing on is is actually really important because mm. then you're looking at what the direction of travel arrow is pointing at you you pick out a landmark or a star or whatever in the distance and that's going to give you the line you want to walk on whereas if you just keep the needle over the right bearing and you look at the arrow you can be veering left or right or downhill mm -hmm. often if you're on a slope and you end up on a parallel track so yeah the more information you use the and not being so fixed i mean yeah. trust your compass but not being so fixated on it that you don't that all other logic i've been out there exactly. out in the water where that yeah. happens to or oh, no the compass says this way yeah, yeah, yeah. you know it's west is that way and we'll, okay <laughs> but the southern cross is <laughs> over there, there. So, yeah yeah and that that's, that's yeah. a funny story yeah just be just, that just one. <laughs> <laughs> won't, won't mention any names <laughs> um yeah so that's that's fascinating so that is yeah yeah it's a, it's a, and i love yeah tristan gooley's book was fantastic uh yes he's, he's uh read a lot of his stuff it's um and it's there's not a lot out of not not a lot out there on natural navigation no he's he's really cornered the market in that in it okay. uh, harold gatti's book was the classic but no um tristan's really taken things forwards which is great it's really good just back to some basics for the for the aussie bush i mean people who've not been to australia before think it's full of poisonous snakes massive spiders things that are going to kill you biting insects, crocodiles, marine stingers, sharks. To the person who just sort of looks at those headlines, it seems like a deadly place. How do you go about 
camping in the bush. You know, you talk about just using a hoochie and a mozzie net in the north. You might use a hammock. I mean, what are the issues? What are the misconceptions? How do you sleep out in the bush without getting eaten alive by something, given that that's many people's concerns before they come here? It, for a start, I, it's grossly over overly exaggerated overseas mm. that everything on every corner behind every tree is waiting to leap out and bite you mm. there's out of it um that, that that is true we have a lot of stuff here but we don't have any land predators nothing on land that's going to eat you the only thing in the ocean are probably sharks and crocodiles and up north that is a, a root menace and they scare the hell out of me crocs mm. and that's that's different but as far as poisonous spiders and sleeping out yeah i think you're out of a, the world's um, top 20 deadly snakes Australia has a, the, the top 10 or something like that and lots of spiders but there's only two dangerous ones um, the, the red back which spends most of its time in a web yep. so unless you're putting your hands under and, and it, they don't really wander no. yeah, they're in creepy places where if you've got bare hands and putting it in it but really if you, you know unless you're just putting your hand in blind and, and fumbling around the chances are you, you might not get bitten however it's a yeah. risk they'll make you um i've, seen, make you I've sick. seen one of those once and that's um they're yeah. the same families the, the black widow, widow yeah. in america mm. but the funnel web's a different story sydney funnel web attracts robustus that's quite a nasty spider and that's but that's only in a 200 kilometer radius around sydney but however mm. they have been found them up north at home now that's a dip people they've only say since 1960s I think had an antivenine for those but mm. a few people used to die from those however they're only in certain areas and if you take certain precautions you're fine the males wander in the summer months and because that's around a you know big our biggest city you'll find that that um, is a chance there in the northern suburbs and they fall into pools a lot of the time but it's like anything once you grow up with something you learn something about them you learn their habits you know what their uh capable of and what they do and you learn how to buy and it's not really so much a tr trouble particularly snakes mm. um our snakes our lapids our poisonous land snakes of which the main dangerous ones are the, your taipan your eastern brown your, your death adders um and tiger snakes now australian snakes have a very high potency of venom mm. and they measure it by how many mice one milligram of venom will kill mm. so our snakes are very very um, potent venom and the reason for that is because they the lapids have very small fangs mm. because of that so uh, we're an african snake and it will, will inject you that gets into the bloodstream where here it's the poison travels up through the lymphatic system so the method of treating snake bite, bite is different and because of that because they have short fangs that's why the, the venom toxicity is so potent, potent right and some people that are killed by a snake bite can just get a scratch. And there have been people that just had a scratch and didn't even know they were bitten by a snake that had died from mm. things like that. So like a stick. But generally snakes don't want anything to do with us. They don't like fire. They don't generally like cleared areas unless they're sunning themselves in privacy. Mm. But they, um, so if you're camping in an area and you clear it to a degree and you've certainly got a small fire if it's of course safe to, to mm. do so. Mm -hmm you'll find generally a snake won't um, wander. I never worry about that. Snakes don't generally worry me at all. Mm. Um, walking through the bush, if you're reasonably heavy-footed, they'll hear you coming. Even if you're just walking normal, they'll hear you coming. Most times I come across a snake is if I'm quiet somewhere and a snake's come across my position if I'm having a break right. or something like that. So will you hear it coming in? 
some if you're quiet you'll hear yeah. a snake and yeah. hear a, a slide you'll yeah. just hear like a rustle but it's like a continuous, continuous. rustle it's not, not like just it's like not a, like a tick, tick, tick. it's like a yeah, or a, yeah. a, a static erratic jump you just hear it and you just yeah. look around and and all you need to do is just freeze and you stop and the snake will um if it hasn't seen you he's probably certainly smelt you you just keep you'll just keep on his um on his way mm. and they really um i was just um on a course uh, my last course for the year bsa there was actually a few young snakes around spring and so a couple of right. brown snakes had three snakes in the one day and it's showing people just you don't need to panic to stop if you see one just let him go mm. and with the fire around and you know generally with people walking around they'll, they'll clear out but it's, it is the younger ones you have to worry about the the older snakes will tend to give you a dry bite Right. If they're threatened, and they don't necessarily inject, inject, inject venom, but a young snake who hasn't learnt that control, it's a bit over exuberant. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, but I, they don't worry me. I don't. I camp out a lot on the ground. I sleep in a swag mm-hmm. lots of times up north. They have uh, um, taipans and, and western browns, which are particularly nasty. But I very rarely see them. Partic- I see them if I'm more wandering through the bush than I yeah. do when I'm in so, a static I mean, area. One of the one of the things I hear people worry about is that they're somehow attracted to warmth. Like, so if you're sleeping and you're warm and it's a bit chilly that they'll be attracted is is that a myth or is i've heard that i've heard stories of other people army waking up and there's been a snake in their sleeping bag and other than i don't know i think someone's probably played a prank i know i played that prank on a mate sometimes (laughs) (laughs) anyway remind me not to go camping with your daughter (laughs) (laughs) that could happen uh, that certainly hasn't had to me. I don't uh, happen to me. I don't particularly worry about that mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. I think more of a, a serious concern is when you're walking to mm-hmm. having is people being dressed correctly, and that means long, long shoes because our snakes have small fangs. Because of that, they won't even just thick pants. They won't generally won't get through. So having something, it's the people that, well, usually the people that get bit are usually the um, people that are careless or idiots that are trying to catch the snake. And so having long, you know, long pants and shoes and sometimes you get people walking barefoot Mm. back from a campsite through which they're the people that would would, would get get hit by a snake. Mm. And it's just being aware and and seeing a snake too. If there's there's certain areas when you walk and you think, wow, this is potentially where snakes could be and just being being aware. And if you see a snake, just stopping. Mm. Um, Most snakes will get out of the way. A brown, it can be pretty aggressive, will stand up. And, but if you just stop, they'll just drop down and go about their way. And they mm. really, it's, the frequency you see them is, is nowhere near what you think. Mm. Spiders the same. There are, yeah, you get lots of other spiders that'll run around at night. But if you know they're not dangerous, I don't tend to worry about them. More of a worry for me are leeches, right. which, yeah, they're not going to, you know, if anything, it's not, I'm not, if not, not going to kill you. I'm not really bothered. Mm. And now they get in and ticks. So yeah. those things are harder pr- to prevent. But generally, in a wet, moist environment like that, I will sleep in a hammock, even right. though I, I'm not hugely a fan of hammocks because mm. I don't sleep as well in them. And so it's more of a hot weather thing for me. But it's, um, yeah, just leeches and ticks. Mm. And that's the main reason. Yeah, I mean, I, I got leeches on my ankle in Queensland when I was up there, and they went straight through my sock. They went through above my boot because I just had ankle boots on. They went above my boot and through my sock. And so the the body was outside the sock and the head was inside the sock. The 
nasty little buggers. But, uh, but they come off fairly and easy. And they'll bleed yeah. because of that anticoagulant yeah. they yeah. got. But yeah, I just dropped some betadine on where they were attached and they came off straight away. So don't like the salt and the iodine. They don't like that. So. And um, yeah, sometimes a bit of salt, but to be honest, I just pull them up with just a hot end of a match will do right, it as well. Right, right. But yeah, it's, it's gross. I think it's really grossly exaggerated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, snakes don't chase you. Right. I did a Bob Cooper's course. Bob runs a great, he's mm-hmm. one of the oldest survival schools in Australia. He uh, runs he's a out great, in, is he he's out in, in Western Australia? He's Western Australia. Yeah. He runs mm-hmm. a great course. And um, he runs a lot of snake handling courses. So mm-hmm. I did a few with Bob, and that's really great. And, and what snakes do, what they don't do. And one mm-hmm. of the final tests in his courses is you have to go and collect a, a number of snakes that have been let go. We've got ti- um, tigers, western browns, and things like that in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a dwelling. And you have to go and find them mm-hmm. and get them out with a hook <laughs> and a stick and put them in a bin. But it's certain, yeah, you, you um, pucker up for that. <laughs> <laughs> But we also realise that a snake, if you're calm, and that, that a snake really wants nothing to do with it, and if you're calm, it, it, it sense, and it's not really a, a bother, but you provoke it, yeah. and you scare a snake, will, you know, but it, its first instinct is to get out of there. It's so out of there, yeah. Yeah. you'd have to, or death adder is probably more risk. Now, funnily enough, I never see those in the wild because they're an adder, and they have a little, they're a short little stumpy tail, and they'll have a little tail that they'll wriggle to attract a bird or something mm. they tend to not get out of the way and they will um they'll wait and so place and like they'll puff use ad, like puff adders in africa they're, they're problematic because they they're camouflage and they don't get out of the way yeah yeah but some of the snakes too are some of them won't bite at first jump like i'm sure they're in, in the wild and it's you know they're used to being hopped on by kangaroos and things that a snake won't necessarily bite you first time around mm. and that's mm-hmm. I mean, I've never stepped on one to find out. I've had a, I've been stuck on a barbed wire fence with a brown snake. Oh, really? Really close. I had to wait for it to go before I could um, get off and I had to check my pants after that as well because they <laughs> certainly, certainly give you a fright. Yeah. But we used to grow up with snakes all the time in, in the outskirts of Moree with water, mm-hmm. dry water in a creek, but we used to get snakes every day. Right. And what you, you mentioned crocs, though, being a different kettle of fish, particularly up north. I mean, they, they give you some concern and what's I mean clearly you need to get water they're in the water I mean how do you manage that in well terms of they do scare me and yeah. from being in new, from New South Wales mm. I had no until I went up to Darwin yeah. to you know part of North Force and basically being out in the bush any waterway you have to assume there's crocodiles in it and mm. the saltwater crocodile being the most aggressive of the, all the crocodilia species mm-hmm. there's um, freshwater crocs they're okay mm-hmm. they're pretty quite timid the saying goes, if you get in the water, a freshwater croc will get out. Right. But they can both live in the same areas, but mm. a saltwater crocodile will actively hunt mm. and take you, especially as big as they grow. Mm. So any waterway at the water's edge, you're in pretty much grave danger. Mm. And so and a lot of people push that. So as far as being in a an area that, that you haven't been to before, the, you could probably get away with something once. But after that, if a crocodile's seen you, they will re- they'll remember, they'll clock that and they'll see a pattern. Right. So, you know, if you're back at the same place, same time, they'll be there. Might two or three times, they'll move in closer and closer and then... So any animals that are set up, drinking habits, same pattern, they'll be waiting. For, and mm-hmm. people as well. But it mightn't be your pattern. It could be the, the people before you that have established right. a pattern. So near, a, near a campsite or something. Right, right. Yeah. And... 
and they are they are scary. I've seen some headless wallabies up north from a, crocs that have grabbed a wallaby and, and flung it because up in north the top part there are no kangaroos they're all wallabies or agile wallabies they'll right. grab it with such ferocity and they'll roll with such torque they'll fling the body away and it's it's uh it's scary we had a, a four and a half meter crocodile stalk some of the students on one of the north force survival courses where we go and when we were this instructors we were fishing the week before getting some some fish mm. And in the middle of it, we could see this wake just coming down this narrow creek line. And the funny thing is you don't expect to see a, a great white shark in a swimming pool, but no. a saltwater croc could happily live in not much water. Right. It pretty exhaust its food supply pretty quickly, and that's why if we were around that sort of area, mm. you know, we'd be on the menu. And to see this crocodile be, get up the bank afterwards, you think, wow. Sure enough, that same croc had ta- he'd taken a horse the week before, and he was around. You know, they ended up tracking this, uh, uh, capturing this croc. They caught it. They caught it in the in trap. They, the Parks and Wildlife came down and put down a trap, and they got him. As actually, they had, and so we had a group of that was a exercise kawari where we had a group of uh, uh, American, ten Americans, ten Australians, and ten Chinese troops, mm. and we were doing a, a survival, getting the you know three forces to work together through the mm. medium of survival course, mm. and. We'd Pretty much, we take them out the bush for a week, give them lessons on survival, then they're left to fend for themselves. Mm. And during part of that, there was this croc in this area. So we'd actually caught this guy, and we had all these troops trying to get this croc onto a... Um, he'd been sedated, but it's huge. And you mm. think, wow, it was great to drum home how serious that threat is. Yeah. Yeah. And because they're protected now, and it's a huge industry, it's like... Uh, it's, you've got to be really, really careful. But they trap one of the survival instructors, um, Worley, in uh, Norforce. He works for the croc management um, team in Darwin. Mm-hmm. So he, I've been out a few times with, with, with Worley on the, on the, the boats getting uh, crocs. And they capture about 250 to 300 crocs a year around Darwin Harbour and all the different estuaries and inlets. Mm-hmm. So there is a number of things they do there. And it's, it's scary how many they are. But um, as far as getting water, if you're out in the bush, any water source up there you have to presume has got a croc. In Kakadu we go, all those areas are being cleared and they're not allowed to open the park until they're cleared. Right. Because they get into up all the upper reaches in the wet season. Mm-hmm. So as far as getting water is concerned, you need to put a bucket or some receptacle on the end of a rope or a pole and you need to dip it in because it, the risk of, you know, if it's pity, unless you can see the bottom and it's clear, any deep hole could harbour a big croc mm. in there, so you don't know. It's quite muddy, a lot of the water up there, isn't it? Yeah. It's the same with the oceans as well, and you've got yeah. a lot of bull sharks in there, and box jellyfish, so mm. you don't do a lot. There's not much swimming that happens <laughs> in the ocean, <laughs> and it's hard because it's so hot, and there's yeah. been cases of people being uh, you know, being lost up there and, and being dehydrated and delirious from, obviously, all the confusion you get from not drinking and, and almost on your death, you know, death door. Go finding a water source finally yes and going head first into it only find there's a crocodile in there yeah. so it can be pretty yeah. it's that sort of things happened but um yeah so you really need same with fishing when you're fishing along the bank you fish you constantly move up right and not being in the same you're always putting a, an, an obstacle between you and the bank so right. if you're fishing it could be the buttress of a tree or something so there's something between you and the water and the water cast right. and then walk back up and never mm. wouldn't stand at the edge so i'm 
sometimes in New South Wales, I find myself backing off the bank and doing things and think, oh, hang on, no, I'm back back, back home. down here, yeah, yeah. But up yeah. there, but so you just... It's, it's the same. I mean, you do. It's the same. I do. I mean, I'm in the UK and we're very lucky in the sense that there's no real poisonous snakes. We've got one poisonous snake that hardly anybody ever gets bitten by. It's normally people's dogs that get bitten on the nose and things and it's not particularly venomous. We've got very little in terms of wasps and bees and you know there's a few of those sorts of things there's no big land predators so you know we're we can kind of do things with relative impunity and not worry about things too much and then you go and do a canoe trip in canada and you're being much more careful with food smells and grease around the camp and making sure that you're storing your food separate to where you're camping and you're not throwing the dishwater out and you know you, you're being careful about managing all of those things that might attract bears and you get into the habit of doing that and then you come back to the uk and you're in camp with somebody who just <laughs> sort of throws the dishwasher mm. over the back of the camp and you can of you you feel yourself kind of reeling and then you realize oh no no i'm back i'm back home now i don't have to worry about that so much yeah, yeah. we're lucky we don't have any kanichu in australia however yeah. the rule of thumb up there if you're camping near any waterway it's got to be a minimum of 50 meters from the water 50 five zero yeah, yeah. and yeah. of course at the steep of the bank but crocodiles can walk to you know five kilometers and then they'll walk to water but generally they want to get to where they're going they're not it's less of a problem i haven't seen that but um they they will do that mm. and there's you know they will travel the bank and sometimes if you go to a waterway you have to be careful you could have a crocodile that's up the bank resting and right. you've walked down and you're in between it it's and in the it, water. it can take you they'll sometimes mm. do that with with wallabies right but generally speaking that they, they won't expose themselves from the water so there's lots there's probably there's been a few deaths recently but mm. they're just people throwing caution to the wind you know mm. going in to get lures from you know that are stuck uh, and yeah. and that sort of thing people fishing too close or swimming in areas mm. they shouldn't swim mm -hmm. but there have been a few taken out of the back of boats mm. through um uh crocodiles jumping up which one's probably precipitated by there's tours that you know entice crocodiles to jump out of the water right, right. to take chickens and things like mm, that and mm. they will do it naturally to a degree but you're training them to do yeah, it yeah and yeah, it was one yeah. that was trained to, to do yeah. it that did that so there's been things like that happen as well as people taken doing silly things like swimming drunk across rivers uh, as yeah. dares yeah, but that's yeah. natural selection as far as I'm concerned <laughs> Darwin Awards literally yeah, yeah. <laughs> both in place and yeah. in and in name <laughs> well, that might that might be a good <laughs> might be a good place to stop Gordo because we've we've been talking a, a couple of hours now and it's all been good stuff I have a t quite a few questions that I haven't asked you but I feel if we get into that we're going to be here for a right another couple of hours which is not a problem but i think we probably should save it for round two all right at some point there's definitely a lot more we could talk about i feel like we've only just scratched the surface mm. there but i really super appreciate you taking the time no to it's do this. been great and great um for people who want to find out more about you where can they find you online bushcraft survival australia any social media that type uh, of thing? website yeah www.bushcraftsurvivalaustralia.com.au yes it's a mouthful <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it was taken um and i will i'll link to all of these things oh, okay. in, in the notes but yeah read them out so people can you know hear them and uh, then, the yeah. instagram uh -huh. And I'm just getting my hand around the uh, the whole social media thing, and yeah. we have a Facebook page as well, mm -hmm. all by the same name. We run courses. We just got a basic and intermediate course. We have mm -hmm. a three day basic course and a, a four day intermediate. 
and, and where do you run those guys? And we you run them that? in Darwin. Yeah. So we run them in, we have courses in Darwin. I generally run two courses in Darwin a year, two basic, three-day basic courses, mm-hmm. quite full-on courses. One intermediate course a year in Darwin. We're introducing the one-day survival essentials course this year. Mm-hmm. And we run the same, we run uh, two three-day basics in Sydney a year and one um, intermediate course up, which is in New South Wales. We, we generally hold those in Coffs Harbour, which is my sort of home area near right. Marker Heads. Mm-hmm. And we also run a basic course up there once a year. Mm-hmm. So three different places. And we're actually doing a course in Melbourne this year, mm-hmm. um, later in the year, in, in October. Uh, our first Melbourne one. We get quite a few inquiries about running them there. And uh, a few other th- interesting things coming up in the pipeline, a few yes. interesting collaborations. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Watch this space. Yeah, indeed. Some good stuff coming, hopefully. So, yeah, wonderful to talk with you, Gordon. And Wha- there's a YouTube channel. And Okay, yep, yep. and easy to and find. Yep, under the same Bushcraft Survival Australia. Yeah, yep, and you've put some good stuff line. out on there. Cause, again, one of the things I was going to ask you about that we touched on briefly was treating snake bites but you've got a video on your youtube yeah there's a video with the sound is a bit funny that was a particularly windy day right and i didn't have the um what do they call it a dead cat yeah yeah i didn't own one to put on right (laughs) but my new thing does but uh it's uh yeah and chris purbity he does the snake uh demonstration snake by the snake Mm. handling and and the snake bite lessons for um norforce we Mm. run our courses and I'm interviewing um, Chris, and he's going right through uh, that, and he demonstrates that on me. Yeah, so that's a great wonderful. way to learn about snakes and yeah. snake bite. I'll um, link. I'll thing. link to that as well in the show notes. So when people go to this episode, the the page on my blog that relates to this episode, they can get all of those links that, oh, we, okay. that we talked about. So uh, yeah, and anything else? A couple of books that we talked about there. I'll try and link to those. Um, Gordo's main website is social media, and anything else that that's relevant. So. Gordo, thank you very much for, for being here. Thank you for taking the time. It's been great to catch up it's again. It's been my pleasure. Thanks a lot, Paul. No, absolute pleasure. And we'll look forward to round two before too long. Okay, thanks right. a lot. Take Cheers, care. Mate. Cheers, mate. Well, thanks again to Gordo for that. I think it's always a good sign of a good conversation if the time goes very quickly and it certainly flew by for me there so i do look forward to inviting gordon back onto the podcast again before too long and i hope you enjoyed it and found it informative too now gordon's been in the fortunate position to be able to travel to take courses with me in the uk and others around the world And Gordon's also taken advantage of my online courses, being able to study remotely and in between his other commitments. You can also take advantage of these courses if you'd like to, and you can get more details on those courses via my dedicated website at onlinebushcraftcourses.com. That's onlinebushcraftcourses.com. Or you can go to the Frontier Bushcraft website and click on the online courses tab in the main menu there. Either way, you can request information on the courses there and I will send you the relevant information on the course that you're interested in. So that's all there for you to have a look at too. And if you enjoyed this session, I've got one more ask for you. Please could you share this conversation, share this episode with somebody else who you think 
will be interested, whether that's telling your friend to have a listen or whether it's sharing something on social media, a link to the page on my blog or a link to where you listen to the podcast on an app or what have you, whatever works for you. I'd really appreciate you sharing this with other people who would also find this interesting. There aren't that many people who listen to podcasts really in the world. And I think a lot more people would benefit from these sessions if they knew about them. So I would really super appreciate your help in spreading the word. And don't forget, you can get all the links and other information mentioned in this podcast in the show notes on the page dedicated to this session by going to paulkirtley.co.uk forward slash podcast for nine. That's paulkirtley.co.uk forward slash podcast 49. And that's a link you can also share if you wish to share this session. So thanks again for listening. I really appreciate you being here, taking an interest in these podcasts and the conversation that Gordon and I had. And I look forward to bringing you another podcast session before too long. I've got some really good episodes in the pipeline coming up as well for you to listen to. So make sure you're subscribed, make sure you share this session so other people can find out and thank you again. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.